Greetings to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class on this Sunday, September 6, 2020. As we normally do in this class, we will be looking at the three assigned scripture readings for next Sunday, for Sunday, September 13. Before we begin, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day as we do every day, so very thankful for all your blessings the blessings you continue to shower down upon us each and every day. We thank you for the physical blessings that you provide, everything that we need to support and sustain us in this life, but especially do we thank you for the eternal blessing through your Son, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of all of our sin and everlasting life in your presence. We thank you for your word also, your self-revelation to us, and we pray that today you would be with us, and that you would guide and bless our study together, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of your word and also of your will for us as your children here in this world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we'll be looking at the lessons for Sunday, September 13, and uh, these lessons uh, point us in the direction of forgiveness, uh, especially the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. The Old Testament lesson from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, uh, is the account of Joseph forgiving his brothers. And then the gospel reading uh, is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, and that is the parable of the unforgiving servant, um, sometimes referred to as the unforgiving servant. Uh, Then we'll be looking at Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, where the primary focus is on how we should um, relate to and uh, interface with those who have weak faith. So let's go first to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. As I mentioned, this is the account of Joseph forgiving his 11 brothers. And just a little background on this to, to... give it some context and make it a little more understandable. Uh, Joseph was, I guess we would describe as uh, a guy who was uh, easy to be angry with if you were one of his brothers, one of his 11 brothers. And actually, a lot of the reason his brothers were angry at him uh, was not really his own doing. Uh, First of all, uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 37, it's very clearly stated there, that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of Joseph's other brothers or his his son his other sons. Um, Joseph was the son uh, that Jacob had in his older age, and was a son through Rachel, uh, the uh, uh, wife of the covenant, you might say. And so, uh, but again, it's very clear that he loved him more than the others, and. As a result of that love for Joseph, Jacob made a special coat for him, the so-called coat of many colors. Uh, He did not make a coat uh, for any of his other sons. And so every time, of course, that his brothers would see Joseph wearing that coat, uh, it would just uh, rub salt in the wounds, so to speak. Uh, And they, no doubt, would become incensed and would be reminded uh, that their father made that coat for Joseph when he didn't make one for them. Then, uh, also in Genesis 37, Jacob has two dreams, and again, these are not his own fault. They're simply dreams that he had 
uh, visions, we might say, that God gave him. At least it, it would appear that way. Uh, in the first of the dreams, uh, he and his brothers were binding sheaves in the field, or uh, crops in the field. And Joseph said uh, in this dream that my sheaf stood upright, and your sheaves, his brother's sheaves, gathered around it and bowed down to it. And Moses records how his brothers hated Joseph even more. So again, Joseph has this dream that he and his brothers are out in the field binding sheaves together, and that Joseph's sheaves stood up, upright, and the sheaves of the brothers came and gathered around it and bowed down to it. So the implication there, of course, is that his brothers are going to end up serving him. And, of course, that did not endear Joseph to the brothers when he told them that. The second dream, uh, we had a sun. He had a dream about the sun, S-U-N, the moon, and 11 stars uh, were bowing down to him, symbolizing, of course, the sun, you would think, would symbolize his father, the moon his mother, and the 11 stars, the 11 brothers, bowing down to him. And uh, again, the implication here is clear that even his father and mother and also the 11 sons are going to end up uh, serving him or beholden to him. And again, Moses records in Genesis 37 how his brothers were even more jealous or angry uh, at him. So as a result, again, uh, as I'm saying, Joseph was an easy guy. Uh, to be angry with, and again, it's not his own fault that his father loved him more than his brothers, and that he simply has these two dreams. Uh, but uh, you get you, by the end of Genesis 37, you kind of realize that uh, the brothers probably had more than enough of Joseph. So one day they are out in a field, uh, he and his brothers, and his brothers uh, took off Joseph's fancy coat, uh, threw it into an, and threw him into an empty pit. And then uh, they, their intention was to kill him, but later they decided they would sell him to some Midianite travelers who were coming by in a caravan, and these traders took Joseph to Egypt, and eventually, I'm trying to make a long story short here, uh, Joseph simply rose in the ranks very quickly in Egypt until he was second in command, second really only to the pharaoh, in all of Egypt in terms of oversight and power and authority. And that great position allowed Joseph to be able to provide food and safety for his, for his father, first of all, Jacob, and especially also his brothers uh, in a time of great famine uh, that occurred in Israel, in the Promised Land. And so when you look at the big picture here, you see that it's a terrible thing that his brothers did to him, uh, beating him, taking his coat, uh, uh, and selling him to these Midianite travelers. Uh, yet, and if you step back a bit, you can see God at work in this entire endeavor, uh, allowing uh, Joseph this very, very prominent position and with so much authority in Egypt that he is able to intervene and help save uh, his family and retain the, the line uh, of the covenant all the way eventually, of course, to the Savior. So with that as background, let's dive into Genesis 50, starting at verse 15. 
when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so Jacob has now passed away, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So you kind of get the thinking of the brothers here that now that Jacob is dead, perhaps there will be no restraint whatsoever on Joseph now, and he will seek vengeance upon them for what they did to him, namely beating him and selling him off to the Midianite travelers. So they're kind of thinking that now they're going to be in trouble. At least that's their their theory. And uh, frankly, it's what they had every right to expect. So verse 16 then of Genesis 50, So they, the brothers, sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, the brothers are scheming here, and they're saying, um, they, they send this message to Joseph implying, or not implying, actually saying, that Jacob, before he died, um, gave this command, that, that namely that Joseph should forgive his brothers. Now, we do, we do not have an account in the scriptures of Jacob actually saying this. It may well be that he did, and we simply don't have an account of it. It also may well be that the brothers just concocted this story. They, they just made up uh, these words, put these words into Jacob's mouth, so to speak, and he never really said them. But they send a message. Notice they don't go themselves. They send a message first. Um, because, again, they are afraid that there's now going to be uh, no limit, no one to stop or limit Joseph in carrying out vengeance against them. So they send a messenger ahead and say that, you know, our, our, our father said this before he passed away, and there would be the expectation that Joseph would follow the command of his father or the will of his father. That's what they are hoping. So please forgive, notice it says there, please forgive uh, the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So he's, he is, uh, again, play, he is, they are speaking of themselves as servants also of Jacob's God, who is also, of course, Joseph's God as well. So um, Joseph then, we go on in verse uh, 17, the last part of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So he calls to mind uh, his father and um, that relationship that they had together. And um, when you stop and think about it, if it was true that Jacob spoke these words, uh, what great words of, of, of uh, forgiveness and compassion that Jacob sought uh, for his remaining sons. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him. Well, where does that sound familiar? The two dreams that we talked about just a little bit ago, uh, bowing down to him a, and said, Behold, we are your servants. Again, notice they did not presume to be retained in a brother status after what they did to Joseph. But Joseph, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? And so 
he's thinking here that vengeance, as Romans twelve nineteen says, you know, vengeance belongs to God. It's not, it is not for us to pursue. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive and as they are today. So notice here that Joseph is able to step back and see the bigger picture, that while they meant it for bad, these brothers meant what they did for evil as a way of uh, punishing Joseph, again, for nothing that he really did except tell them his dreams and wear the coat that his father made for him after favoring him, um, they now are completely forgiven. And do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Um, and God meant it for good. God used their evil practice uh, in order to save the lives of many people, providing food for them in a time of great famine. And, you know, we see this throughout the scriptures, God working in the midst of that which is bad or is evil to bring about his good. Uh, you can hear the words of Romans 8.28 echoing in our ears at this point, you know, that God works for good in all things to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, we had that, that very verse some weeks back in this class. And here in Romans 8.28, of course, Paul is not saying that all things are good. There are things that are terrible in this world, such as cancer and, you know, bad car accidents and, and natural, uh, so-called natural disasters of fires and floods and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and so on. So he is not saying all things are good, but he is promising here. God is promising to be at work for the good in the midst of all things. And here's a perfect example, using even the terrible treatment that Joseph received from his brothers to bring about good. And of course, the ultimate example of that very principle is the, the arrest, the uh, conviction, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the most unjust thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. The one who was totally sinless is made to be sin and is, is crucified as a common criminal on a cross. And yet, look at what God is at work in that unjust action in order to accomplish. Namely, the payment for the sin of the world by the blood shed on the cross, by the life voluntarily given on the cross by God's own Son. That's the ultimate example of this very principle. And verse 21, so do not fear, Joseph says, Joseph says to his brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. What a contrast between what you would expect from a human standpoint. You would expect that Joseph would have been just waiting to get retribution and vengeance uh, on his brothers. Not at all what we see happening here. In fact, he goes the extra mile, doesn't he? Don't fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones, so and your families and your children. He comforts them and speaks kindly to them. What an incredible example of forgiveness in the scriptures. And it, I am reminded of the words that Jesus spoke 
uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the very last section of Matthew chapter 5. This is starting at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so the whole idea there, and this, this is so, so challenging, of course, for us as we live day to day, to even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, sometimes it's easy to forgive if it's a small thing that has happened and you know that the person did not intend it to happen. It's an unforeseen consequence that occurred. Those are sometimes the easy ones to forgive. The difficult and challenging ones can be when we are wronged by someone and it is intentional and it is meant to harm us. It is meant to to bring about something bad in our lives. Those are the hard ones to forgive. And when you think about it here, what an incredible example of forgiveness this is on the part of Joseph toward his brothers. So we'll talk about forgiveness a little bit more after we do the gospel lesson for this next Sunday. And I'd like to move to that right now if we could. This is Matthew 18, and we're going to be starting at verse 21 and going through verse 35. And this, again, is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And, of course, a parable is simply a story that Jesus tells. It's, he's not... Uh, He's not reporting an actual historical event. It's a story that he is composing. He uses earthly details in order to teach us something about life in the kingdom of God. Uh, The old uh, Sunday school definition, I guess you'd say, of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And uh, that's not a bad definition. Again, it's a story that Jesus tells in order to teach his hearers something about life in the kingdom of God, an important lesson about life in the kingdom of God. And let's take a look at this one. Of course, the lesson here is concerning forgiveness, just as the Old Testament lesson was from Genesis. So starting at verse 21 of Matthew 18, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, Peter is asking a question here of Jesus that, of course, is a very practical, down-to-earth question. And Peter probably thinks that Jesus is going to commend him for his great compassion and forgiveness. The rabbis at that time were teaching that you only had to forgive someone three times. In other words, you were only bound to forgive them three times. After that, you had no obligation to forgive someone. Well, Peter doubles that three and then throws in another one for good measure and is probably, again, expecting that Jesus is going to commend him for how generous he is with his forgiveness. So Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, 
but 77 times. Uh, you may have different translations that seven, some might say something like 77s, and again, that's, it's hard, um, it's difficult to translate. That's exactly what it is in the original language, 77s. And again, that doesn't mean 77 times. It doesn't mean 70 times 7 or 490 times. The idea here, of course, is that it is an unlimited, um, unquestioning forgiveness that the follower of Christ demonstrates toward his brothers and sisters, towards all people, actually, not just brothers and sisters in Christ. And forgiveness is to be a way of life for the one who has been forgiven so very much by our God. And that's going to be the point of the parable. Let's go on to verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, that's Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now we have to stop here and just talk about how much is 10,000 talents. Well, a talent is a measure of currency that would be equal to 20 years of wages for a laborer. 20 years of wages. And this guy is brought to the king, and he owes the king 10,000 of these 20 years worth of wages. It is an incredible amount of money. We can't begin to fathom how high the stack of bills would be uh, for 10,000 times 20 years of wages. So in other words, it's, a, it's an amount that uh, no human being would be allowed, would be able actually to pay off. So verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, namely to be sold into slavery with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And this was a practice, a, a uh, uh, king or someone, a master of this uh, uh, stature, had the ability to do this if he was owed that much. So he's basically selling him, his wife, his children into, into slavery and taking every possession that remains and so on. Verse 26, the reaction of the servant. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Well, of course, he could never pay him everything. That's just an insurmountable debt that he owed the, the master. But here comes a great verse, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the, the master, it says, has pity on him and releases him or forgave him that incredible amount that he owed. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, this is the servant who had been forgiven so much, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Well, let's stop and compare these two. A denarii, actually a denarius, was the wage that a laborer received for one day's worth of work. 
In other words, if you worked, for example, in a vineyard uh, for a day as a laborer, you received a denarius. And this servant owed the servant who was forgiven so much just a hundred denarii, or a hundred days' worth of wages. You know, and while it's not a, a real uh, minuscule amount, in comparison to the 10,000 times 20 years of wages that the servant was forgiven by the king, this is an incredibly small uh, amount. It's a, it's a speck compared to what he owed the king. How does this servant react? He seized this other servant and began saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So notice the parallel actions that take place here. Both of these servants fell down and pleaded for patience so that they could repay the debt. The first king, the first person, the king, had pity or had mercy on the servant. This servant, however, who is forgiven so much, has no mercy whatsoever on his fellow servant and puts him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, the, the master or the king here points out uh, exactly what uh, the, the second servant really should have done. He should have had mercy on his fellow servant and forgiven him in the same way that the king or the master had mercy on him and forgave him. And let's simply go and take a look at the earthly parts to this parable. First of all, the master would certainly be God the Father. Uh, and then the servant who was forgiven much, well, that's you and I. <laughs> that's, that's us. Uh, we are the ones uh, that have been forgiven so very much and uh, continue to be forgiven so very much uh, as we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. And yet, uh, the servant who owed so little uh, is meant to symbolize those in our lives who sin against us. It was just one sin against us versus the uh, countless sins that we have and unfortunately still commit. And the idea, of course, is that we who have been forgiven so much by our merciful Father, by his grace, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, should be, it should be an automatic reflex for us to be able to turn around and forgive those who've sinned against us. Now, let's talk for a minute about what it means to forgive someone. The verb that is used here to forgive, in fact, 
it's used four times in this gospel lesson, means to release uh, someone or something. So to forgive someone means to release someone from your retaliation uh, and and retribution and uh, the vengeance that, frankly, they may very well deserve, even according to God's law. So by forgiving someone, we're not saying that what they did was right. It might have been very, very wrong, even uh, according to to God's commandments. Uh, So even in his eyes, what they did would have been wrong. But to, to forgive them is to release them from the vengeance and the retribution that you would seek against them. And again, it may be very well what they deserve. It doesn't mean they were right to do what they did uh, or, or maybe not to do what they should have done, omitting doing something. It simply means that you, who have been released from an incredible amount of God's retribution and vengeance, Um, extend the same release from your retribution and your vengeance to others. Remember how Joseph said in the Old Testament that is he God to seek vengeance? And remember how I referenced Romans 12, 19, which clearly says that vengeance belongs to God, not to us. Let me also say a word about the old adage, forgive and forget. Um, Over the course of my years, I've had a couple of people come up to me and say, Pastor, I don't know if I've truly forgiven someone because I cannot forget what they did to me. And they feel that if they've truly forgiven them, they should be able to not remember what happened any longer. And of course, that's impossible. We were probably, especially if it was something significant that was done, we're not going to be able to necessarily forget what happened. We're going to still be able to remember what occurred. But I always say to people, it's not whether you remember it or not, it's how you remember it. Do you still remember it with those feelings of wanting to get vengeance and retribution, wanting to get even or better than even with someone else? And that if, you, if that's the way you remember it, then I would suggest that, no, you probably have not yet really forgiven them in your heart. However, if you simply remember it as something that happened, if you remember it as something you have let go of in terms of uh, seeking vengeance and retribution and don't harbor those feelings any longer, uh, then certainly you have forgiven them. Um, Also, probably a a time here just to talk about how complete and total is the nature of God's forgiveness of us. Not only does he forgive us an incredible amount in terms of volume of sin, but that that forgiveness is so complete and so um, uh, all-encompassing. One of the verses that's one of my favorites is Psalm 103, verse 12, where the psalmist writes, As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. And in other words, the point is, our sins and our transgressions can't get any further away from us than they are. That's how completely and thoroughly God removes them from us. And before him now, we stand in God's grace 
and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that, again, is not because of anything we have done or failed to do. It is all as a result of what God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to say a couple of other things, too. You know, we as, as people are tempted to kind of keep score when it comes to what people do to us and what we do to them and, you know, uh, whose turn it is to forgive. And uh, I don't want to forgive that person unless they come and, for, you know, uh, say they're sorry first. Um, you know, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Remember how Peter, at the beginning of this entire section, was calculating how many times he should forgive someone and thought seven would be a real generous number? In the Christian life, there is to be no calculating of forgiveness. God certainly doesn't calculate in terms of our forgiveness, and that's a, obviously a very good thing. So also for us in our interactions with others. Calculating is the way of the law. Calculating is the way of the old sinful nature that we still carry around in us. Christ here in telling us this parable lets us know that the Christian is to forgive an unbounded a number of times, an unconditional every time it is sought forgiveness of those around us who sin against us. It is the way the Christian lives. And I also want to comment on the warning, I guess you would call it. There's no other way to, to describe it at the end of this parable. Uh, you know, we, we may not want to hear these words, but they are Jesus' words nonetheless. Um, you know, the master at the end with the unforgiving servant um, has him delivered over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That's normally thought of as a symbolizing hell. The jailers would torment prisoners and... Um, that's normally thought of being thrown into hell. And he says here, verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I would just like to read the last section that uh, Dr. Jeffrey gives in his excellent commentary on Matthew. He's, uh, this is the commentary from Matthew 11, 2 to uh, chapter 11, verse 2 to chapter 20, verse 34. It is the, uh, in the Concordia Commentary series published by Concordia Publishing House. Professor Gibbs, now a retired member of the Concordia Seminary St. Louis faculty, writes this. Because Jesus' disciples themselves stand only and ever in the framework and the flow of his forgiveness, they are called to forgive one another unconditionally and always. To steadfastly refuse to forgive is unjust and wicked. A life filled with such refusal is a life where faith in Jesus, if it exists, will die. Such a life will lead to damnation when God himself condemns such wickedness on the last day. So this, although this is a, a wonderful parable, it does end with a pretty stern and severe warning. And I would just at this point, I don't want to turn this into a sermon, but I would just encourage all of us to think about, is there anyone in our lives for whom we still are harboring vengeance and a desire to get even or even better, uh, someone that we desire retribution against? 
And I, if that is the case, I would urge you to pray. Pray that God would give you the ability to forgive that person or those people, whoever it is, uh, from, from your heart, as Jesus says, that he would give you the, the opportunity and the ability to release that person or those people from your vengeance and retribution. And I pray that that will happen in your life, um, if it is needed in your life. All right, so we're going to shift gears here now as we go to the third and final lesson. Actually, it's the epistle lesson. I wanted to do the Old Testament and the Gospel together since they talk about the same topic. Now here in, Revela- uh, sorry, in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we're going to be looking at how we as Christians now should act. So this is, this is terms of living our life now uh, with respect to those who have a weak faith. And let me just read the first uh, verse here, and then we'll talk about uh, what it is Paul's driving at here. Starting at verse 1 of Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Now, basically here, what, what Paul is saying is, as Christians, we have freedom in some things that are not commanded, nor are they rejected in Scripture. In other words, things where the Bible does not command that a certain thing be done a certain way or uh, a certain thing be uh, the way we do things. These are, these are areas not of right or wrong. They are areas where the Bible is silent. Um, a modern-day example might be whether we distribute the Lord's Supper with using a common cup or individual cups. I know some people that is a very... Uh, big uh, item, very serious item, matter of great importance. But again, it is neither commanded nor rejected uh, in the scriptures, uh, the, the method of the distribution. Uh, same way with baptism, uh, whether we sprinkle the water, pour the water, or uh, immerse uh, the person totally under the water, uh, not commanded a certain way, and um, again, to some people, uh, these are very important matters. So the weak in faith person is the person who is unsure about the freedom that they have. Even though they, technically speaking, have the freedom uh, to do it a certain way, they're afraid to do it that way. They are afraid of the repercussions of doing it that way. And so we... Uh, how are we to act toward them in living our Christian lives? Well, that's what Paul is at here. That's what he is exploring here. So uh, we take a look at what he says. First of all, um, do not quarrel over opinions. Again, these are just opinions. They are not matters of right and wrong. So if someone is weak in the faith and says, oh, I don't think I can do that, or I don't think I should or better do that, the answer is not to quarrel with them. And boy, I will just say too how Satan loves to divide us uh, in matters such as these things. I mean, there have been instances where congregations go into total meltdown and have a huge conflict over something that is neither commanded nor rejected in the Scriptures, but rather is a matter of freedom and preference on the part of certain people. Let's go on and we'll get into more what Paul is is describing here. 
Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So matters of food, for example, here. Uh, and we think of, for example, uh, the, um, the Old Testament uh, dietary laws that were given, the so-called clean and unclean foods mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, one person who is a Christian may say, well, I, I have the, the right to eat any of what God has created. In fact, if we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, uh, Jesus uh, basically there does away with all the Old Testament dietary laws and says that it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out of the person that defiles him. And, uh, but another person may, so another person may say, I can eat whatever I want. Uh, we've got that passage from Mark 7. We've got many others. And another person may say, no, I think I should restrict my diet in conformity with the word of God in the Old Testament. And again, those are matters of mere preference. Um, Verse 3, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So in Christ, God has welcomed both the person who eats the food freely, and the person who abstains from eating the food freely. And there are not to be arguments within the body of Christ over these matters of opinion. Verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, sort of driving at the idea here that in the end, God, of course, is the only judge, and the Lord, in the end, will make him stand, both the person who eats and the person who abstains. Now, a different sort of choice here. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Well, we might be talking here about such things as the Sabbath day, or the Old Testament festival days, that perhaps some Christians, being Christians, might still uh, observe, for example, some of the festivals uh, in some way or another, and again, doing so out of complete faith and, and allegiance to God, and even honoring Christ in doing so. For many of these festivals in the Old Testament would point ahead to the one perfect Uh, We think of Colossians uh, 2 here, that all of these things were only shadows of Christ to come, Uh, Christ being the reality. Uh, It's the picture of, you know, you're coming around a corner, and I see your shadow coming before you, and then you actually round the corner, and there you are, the real thing, not just the shadow. Well, in Colossians 2, we talk about, uh, Paul talks about uh, these sacrifices and festivals, new moon and old moon, uh, new moon rather than Sabbath, are simply shadows of that which is to come, Christ, of course, being the reality. So Paul says, you know, let's, let's not have um, arguments over these kinds of things. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, even if it's a fe- you know an Old Testament festival day, observes it in honor of the Lord. There's where Paul is saying they're still observing it, but they're doing it in honor of the Lord. So let's not argue with them about it. 
the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. So probably, the, we think here, probably the one who eats even the so-called unclean foods uh, mentioned in the Old Testament does so in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who uh, abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So they're both, they are both brothers in Christ, brothers and perhaps sisters in Christ. They are both doing this in fear and trust and love of God. And so let's not be critical of one another, again, regarding matters of mere opinion. Uh, there's a scriptural term, or not a scriptural term, but a, a theological term for this, and it's sometimes referred, these things are sometimes referred to as matters of adiaphora. In other words, the Bible has not either commanded or rejected them. Uh, things, I mentioned a couple before, uh, they also would include for, uh, perhaps uh, things like, what times are our services going to be held? Uh, are we going to have services on Saturday? Are we going to have services on Monday in addition to Sunday? What color should our carpet be? What, what uh, uh, design should our stained glass windows be? Uh, now, obviously, there could be extremes in these cases that uh, uh, symbols in stained glass windows, I recognize, could be sinful if, if uh, done um, you know, not in honor and praise and glory to God. I realize that. But we're talking here about things about which Scripture is silent. And they boil down to be matters of mere opinion. And so Paul is looking out here for the person who is weak in the faith, maybe new in the faith, and is of a certain opinion about whether he should or should not do something. And Paul is saying, let that person alone. Do, let them practice the way they practice in these things that are matters of mere opinion. I... Uh, Typically, I've used an example. It's not a perfect example, but it is something that occurred in my life. Uh, some of you may know that I got my Doctor of Ministry degree in preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was together with a group in a cohort of about a dozen of us who were pastors. I was the only Lutheran pastor in that group. The rest were Baptist pastors. And a number of times we would go out, uh, we were there for two-week periods on campus and then back home for uh, a class, and uh, so we were on campus for the two-week intensive classes. And many times we would end up going out to eat dinner together, the whole group together. I really enjoyed that time together. But when the server would come and ask if we wanted anything to drink before the meal, I knew there would have been nothing wrong with me having a beer or a glass of wine, but I abstained from doing so because I knew that that would be offensive or could certainly be offensive to the other pastors who were there, to the Baptist pastors who were there. And so I abstained. Did I have a right to have a beer or a glass of wine? Of course, as long as I obviously did not drink in excess, but I refrained from doing so. And I don't mean to imply here that the Baptists were weak in the faith. Uh, as, as I say, it's not a perfect analogy. But if you're at a certain point and you know that someone is maybe a new Christian 
or maybe has a problem with something uh, such as drinking any alcohol, uh, it, it is a wise thing, I think, to do and a loving thing to do to abstain from that. Uh, if you know it's going to cause someone to stumble in their faith and in their walk with Christ, do you have every right to do so? Yes. But the point is not to think about yourself first and your brother or sister second, the other way around. In the same way, Christ didn't think of himself and his own comfort first, but obviously thought first of all of us. And we are called upon to do the same. Just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should do something. I think that's the point Paul is really making here. And not to cause divisions over such things. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I really like verse 7. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Not in the body of Christ, anyway. We are all connected. And Paul elsewhere in his writings talks about that. We all are different parts. We all have different roles to play. And we are all connected in the body of Christ. We have to remember that, that we are together with our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then verses 8 and 9, how beautiful these are. These would be great as a funeral text. Uh, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And, boy, what a beautiful way to think about uh, what God does with and for the Christian at death, that our soul goes to be with the Lord. Body, obviously, remains here awaiting that day when Christ will return in all power and in all glory and raise our lowly bodies making them like his glorious body, uh, incorruptible, unable, unable to be impacted by sin, and immortal, unable to be impacted by death anymore. There, frankly, there will be no more death, obviously. So a beautiful text here. We are always the Lord's, aren't we? Whether it's in life or in death, we are always the Lord's. And verse 9, he says, for, to this end or for that purpose, Christ died and lived again. Christ died and rose again that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. So beautiful section there. Let's finish this off then. Uh, time is getting short. Verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And so again, Paul talking about inner conflict and the way we are so easily able to judge our brother or our sister. And it's always, of course, according to our interpretation, our opinion, especially, again, when we're talking about things that are neither commanded nor rejected in the Scriptures. Uh, verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That's a quote of Isaiah 45, verse 23. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That last verse 12 maybe is troubling to some, 
Uh, again, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Um, everyone appears, of course, before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day. And in Matthew 25, uh, we have that giving of an account, I guess. In fact, it's, uh, it's the separation, of course, of the sheep and the goats. And the goats, first of all, are ridiculed for, uh, by Christ for not coming to visit him when he was in prison, not giving him food when he was hungry, drink when he was thirsty, and so on. And again, a, a general way of, of looking at this, a simple way of looking at this perhaps, is that on the last day, Christians, of course, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, will only have good works, uh, which they have done in response to and in gratitude for God's great mercy upon them. And unbelievers, of course, will have nothing but their own unrighteousness uh, to present before God, because it is impossible to please God without faith, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. So on the last day, we, give, uh, we gladly give an account. Uh, it's an account, basically, we would say, of what God has done for us in and through Christ and what God has worked in and through us on account of Christ. And for Christians, that day is going to be an incredible day that we look forward to, uh, that we uh, hope, and many times hope, will come soon. But at any rate, it is a day that has already been appointed, and it, Christ is coming just as he has promised and just as Scripture continues to promise. So some great lessons for next Sunday. Uh, really dealing with some very, very practical matters. Um, we, of course, because we live in a sinful world, because we live in the midst of sinners, are called upon to forgive because there is no question we are going to be sinned against. People are going to unintentionally and sometimes, unfortunately, intentionally sin against us. And what is the proper response on the part of the Christian? It is to forgive. In the same way Joseph forgave his brothers, and in the same way, Christ advises through the telling of the unforgiving servant. And then we have in the epistle lesson how we are to react, uh, especially toward those who have a weak faith, and that we are not to have arguments and judge other people concerning things that are adiaphora, that are not spoken of in a command or rejected in the scriptures. So we look forward to next Sunday. Let me conclude with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.